0: Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 25. Uh, We're taking a short break from 1 Peter. I realize we should be starting 1 Peter chapter 4. We probably will not be back in 1 Peter until sometime in June. After Easter, and thinking more about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus and His ascension and that he's coming back, there are some other themes that I wanted to cover. uh, And we're going to begin that today out of Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. The five who are wise and the five who are foolish. Ready or not, here he comes. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts today. Lord, we thank you that you're coming for your bride. Everything that we see going on in the world today that alarms us. One of these days you will bring to an end because you're coming for your bride. And we're going to be with you in that new heavens and new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Thank you. Thank you for your provision for us. And Lord, it saddens us at the same time to know that many, perhaps some even in our own midst, are not ready. And they will be left and the door will be shut. Lord, I pray today that you would press upon their hearts and minds the urgency of the hour. And that they would come to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest celebrated facts in all of the Bible is the glorious second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 1, two angels appeared to the disciples and said, Men and brethren, why do you stand here gazing into the sky? This same Jesus whom you have seen leave is coming again. The early church proclaimed the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord himself often spoke of his return. Folks, we know that every single day that passes gets us one day closer to that moment. It could be today. We just don't know. And that makes man's part to simply be ready. I think the Boy Scout motto of being prepared is the right motto here. We need to be ready in case Christ were to come today. You know, we're called upon in much of life to make preparation. In school, students have to do their homework, their assignments. They have to prepare for upcoming tests. In athletics, teams prepare. They practice. They study film, they scrimmage, they get ready to meet their opponent on game day. In business, preparation is made. Budgets are prepared, training is conducted, technology is advanced where possible. And so the fact of the matter is, we prepare all the time in life. Jesus is teaching us here that we need to make the same type of preparation in our lives for eternity because the Bible says there is a wide road that leads to destruction and there is a narrow road that leads to life there is a heaven and there is a hell and as Jesus pointed out everybody does not end up in the same place heaven is a place of eternal bliss where we fellowship with God hell is a place of eternal torment prepared for the devil and his angels folks we are to be prudent we are to be prepared We are to be ready to meet the Lord because it doesn't just all happen by accident. It doesn't happen without advanced planning. The need is now. The need is urgent. None of us can presume upon the fact of thinking that we might have more time because we may not. Even if it is not the return of Christ, it might be a surprise visit to your doctor with that report that nobody wants to hear. I've spoken to people before that after they have that meeting with their doctor, they come back and they say, Pastor, you know what? I'm okay. I'm ready. But I just thought that I would have more time. I thought I would live longer. It may be a car accident. That takes the life of either you or one of your loved ones. The ancient rabbi Eliezer taught his disciples repent one day before you die. Well his disciples said but rabbi how will we know when we're going to die? He said exactly so repent today. The time may be at hand where the cry goes out. Behold the bridegroom cometh. At such a time, folks, it's going to be too late to get ready. Whatever state you are in is how you are going to be taken. The story is told of Martin Luther that one day while he was hoeing his garden, a friend came to visit and asked what he would do if he knew Christ were returning that very day. Luther is supposed to have answered, well, I would just keep right on hoeing my garden. The point is, whatever... Uh, We are doing, if we are prepared to meet Jesus and we're living in the will of God and ready to meet Him at any moment, it is appropriate then to just keep doing what you're doing. There isn't any aspect of our lives that we should be embarrassed about. Well folks let's look at our passage today and as we look at this passage the parable of the ten virgins I want you to understand it comes within the larger context of a special section of scripture known as the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is teaching on the end of times. And he's answering questions by his disciples that they approached him about. And this whole section begins back at the beginning of chapter 24. Now you'll remember in chapter 23 Jesus was having a lot of confrontations with with various religious groups. And he ended with an official denouncement of their religious establishment. In verse 38 of chapter 23 Jesus said I'm leaving your place to you desolate and he walked out of the temple. In chapter 24 Jesus goes out of the temple and that is symbolic of the end of the temple's relevance in the purposes of God. God's purposes are now in Christ whom they rejected. In verse 2 of chapter 24, in verse 2 we, we see there uh, that Jesus answered them, you see all of these things. He's talking to his disciples as he's walking out of the temple. He says, you see all of these things because they pointed to the magnificence of the temple. He said, do you, do you not see this? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That was fulfilled in 70 A.D., not many years later. You see, the Romans would come in, and the Roman general Titus and his armies would com- his army would completely destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And they literally took one stone off of another. It was total destruction. Just read sometime Josephus' report of what happened. Then in in verse 3, we have the disciples question to Jesus, which is a two-part question. It says, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Lord, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Two questions. When will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple that you're talking about. And Jesus deals with that all the way down through verse 35. In verse 34 he says this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Sometimes in these verses Jesus is alluding to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and at other times he's also fast forwarding ahead to the very end talking about his second coming. When he speaks in verses 15 to 22 of the abomination of desolation and tribulation that they've never seen, I know that many people, perhaps even some here today, believe that Jesus is talking about a yet future event. I do not. I, I follow... Two of the best commentators on Matthew would be Dr. D.A. Carson and Dr. R.T. France. And and I follow their approach on this. I believe what, what Jesus is speaking of here at this point is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the abomination of desolation was perhaps a reference to the Roman standards the banners, the flags that they had on, on poles that the Romans came in in 70 AD and leading up to 70 AD and their standards had all of these Roman images on them that the Jews considered to be sacrilegious and they set those Roman standards up in the court of the temple and in the temple itself and the Romans actually sacrificed things to those Roman standards. It's significant that Matthew uses the neuter here and not the masculine. If he was using the masculine, then you might think of a person such as an Antichrist being the abomination that causes desolation. But Matthew is clearly speaking of an object here being that abomination and not a person. And again, all of that happened in in the destruction of 70 A.D. I think Jesus is speaking to those who experience that destruction, who would see it. And he's referencing everything that they're going to go through in verses 16 to 22. He's talking about how bad it's going to be for them and how they need to come down off their rooftops and they need to run. They need to get out of Judea and woe to you if you're pregnant in those days. Again, just read Josephus how devastating it was. Then we come down to verse 36, and I think very clearly we have a total shift in our reference point. He's talking there about future, even what's yet future to you and me today. Now, I realize that the real question is what to do with verses 29 to 35. Those are the verses that are the most challenging interpretively. Are they all referencing past events? Are they referencing all future events? Or is it back and forth, past and future? But again, when we come to verse 36, it seems that whatever you do with that preceding paragraph, whatever side of interpretation you fall down on, when you come to verse 36, it is speaking of a yet future time. In verse 3, the disciples asked as their second question, what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus begins dealing with that beginning in verse 36. And listen to what he says there beginning in verse 36. You can read it with me. He says, but concerning that day and hour no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the meal, one will be taken, one left. One left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming. He would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. So what's the point there? The point there is verse 42 stay awake. And verse 44 be ready. Stay awake and be ready because folks for some it's going to be totally unexpected for others it's going to be sooner than they expected and still for others his coming is going to be later than they expected look at verse 45 to that he says who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes truly I say to you he will set him over all his possessions but if that wicked servant says to himself my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and so whether Jesus comes sooner than you expect or later than you expect what's the moral of the story the moral of the story is be ready Folks, I think if we get caught up in in too many of the debates about when this is going to happen and when that's going to happen, we miss the real point that Jesus is trying to drive home in these parables. The real point is to be ready. If you're ready, you're ready. If you're ready, the timing of when it happens is sort of irrelevant. Irrelevant. People will disagree and argue over the timing issues in these verses and they miss the real lesson. The parable of the ten virgins, the lesson is readiness. We're going to see that this morning. We're going to see this morning that that in this parable that it teaches us that we are always to be prepared for the coming of the Lord that could happen at any moment. First thing I want you to note with me this morning. Preparation must be made in advance. Preparation must be made in advance. Read with me again verses 1 to 4. Jesus said, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. Preparation has got to be made in advance. Notice from verse 1 that all 10 bridesmaids, all 10 virgins expected to meet the bridegroom. Now, isn't it amazing how so many people expect and assume that they're going to be with Jesus one day? People just somehow or another expect That they're going to be in heaven with the Lord and they're going to take part in all of the joys of heaven. You know when you read all the passages in the Bible about heaven you see that there are always passages of joy and celebration. There's great uh, festivals going on and celebrations and, and it seems like there's lots of eating and fellowship together and, there, and there's a lot of joy. Everybody obviously is tickled to death. that They're there with all of the saints of old. They're, they're there with other believers and what's best of all, they're there with Jesus. And it seems like everybody is expecting to be there. Folks, in my entire years of being in the ministry, I can probably count on one hand the number of people who have told me, Pastor, I know I'm not going to be there. I'm going to hell, and I know it. It seems like everybody is expecting they're going to heaven. Just attend funerals, and you'll see what I'm talking about. You'll see that the assumption is almost always made that the deceased is with the Lord. Folks think that somehow or another, it's just going to all work out in the end. But folks, that's not what we see in the Bible. Things just don't pan out in everybody's favor. Preparation's got to be made in advance. You got to have reservations. The Bible is very clear on this point. There is an event that's got to take place in your life and my life. The Bible calls it the second birth, the new birth. Jesus spoke to a religious man about this. He said, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. The Holy Spirit quickens us, draws us to faith in Jesus Christ. We're we're regenerated. We place our faith in the Lord. We repent of our sins. And we become a new creation in Christ. And unless that has happened in your life, you have no reason whatsoever to assume that you're going to be in heaven because the Bible says otherwise. Again, Jesus said to Nicodemus, "A religious man, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven." Folks, that is about as stern a warning as we can get. Preparation's got to be made in advance. Jesus has just spoken in chapter 24 of two being in a field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding at the meal, one taken, one left. But here go these ten virgins and all of them equally are expecting to be with the bridegroom. But the Bible says five of them were wise and five were foolish. This parable is a warning to all of those, perhaps somebody here today, who thinks that they're going to be with the bridegroom, even though they know they're not ready. Jesus highlights these five foolish virgins, and essentially he's telling us, Do not be like them. He's saying look at them closely, look and learn, look at the outcome of their lives and do not follow in their footsteps. Now the weddings of Jesus' day were so interesting. According to one rabbinic law, the earliest that a young girl could be married was 12 years of age and the earliest that a young man uh, could be married was 13 years of age. Now the marriages most often were prearranged by the fathers while the bride and the groom were still married. Children. Now, after the arrangement, there would come the time of betrothal. The bride and the groom usually would exchange some type of very simple vows to a small network of friends and family, and then they would go back home after that simple ceremony and they would live with their parents respectively for up to a year while all of the final arrangements continued to be made. The couple was considered married. And promised to one another during that time of betrothal. In fact, their relationship at that point could only be broken by a formal divorce. If the husband-to-be died during the time of the betrothal, the woman was considered a widow even though she was still a virgin. When it was time for the public marriage, the entire community, the entire village would come out and get involved in the celebration. And sometimes that celebration would go on almost endlessly for an entire week. The groom-to-be would have a party at his house with all of his friends. The bride-to-be would have a party at her house with all of her friends. Now, by the way, the emphasis back then in ancient times was on the bridegroom. Sorry, ladies, but that's how it was. Okay? Who gets all the attention today? The bride does. Nobody cares anything about the groom. (laughs) Guys, let's just face it all you and I need to show up at the last minute just say I do I mean that, nobody cares uh, uh, about the groom one writer, one scholar He he found an article on this And he, and he posted it. it It was so funny It was in a modern day newspaper And it was describing a marriage And it was describing the bride And it just went on and on Talking about the bride What kind of dress she had on Who made it uh, who, Where she had bought it How much it was It described her hairdo Her makeup What she had chosen for this and that The floral arrangements Who the florist was I mean it just went on and on and on and on on describing everything about the bride and then the article said and the groom was present (laughs) five words the groom was present but you know back in that day back in Jesus day it was a patriarchal society and it was the opposite all of the focus was on who the groom was who his family was who he was what he did Folks, in the New Testament, who gets the most emphasis, the bride or the bridegroom? The bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Then the groom and his party would go and get the bride and her her party, and there would be this great procession of lit torches back through the village, back through the streets to the groom's home. Now sometimes in those separate parties the groom and his friends would take forever it seemed to stop their partying and go and get the bride. They would go on and on and on. Scholars suggest it wasn't uncommon that the groom and his dad would still be working out some of the the full details of the final dowry arrangements. And there would be some last-minute wrangling over that, and that would cause the delay. You know, in Western society, we don't do diaries, do we? We, we don't do that. But, you know, people will, people will still say to me, Preacher, how much honorarium should we pay you? Don't ask that question. Don't ask how much of an honorarium you ought to pay. You know what I I've, I've started telling them, just pay me what you think the bride is worth and before and before y'all and before y'all pull out of the parking lot going to the honeymoon, I'm going to tell her what you paid. <laughs> But we don't do all that in Western society the way they did. But at any rate, it wasn't uncommon for things to just drag on and on and on. Whatever reason for the delay. And the five wise bridesmaids were well aware that the groom and his party might be late. And so what did they do? They prepared wisely for the long delay. But what did the foolish virgins do? The foolish virgins were living only for the moment. The moment. Only for the moment. And they weren't thinking about the future. They weren't thinking about the delay. Now, folks, isn't that the way it is when when people reject giving their lives to Christ? They say, you know what? I'll take care of that someday. I've got time. I'm young, I've got lots of time. They procrastinate. And the Bible over and over again warns us about the urgency of the moment. The scripture says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Chuck Swindoll writes a beautiful illustration about procrastination. He says allow me to introduce to you a professional thief. Quick as a laser and silent as a moonbeam he can pick any lock in your home or office. You'll treat him like your closest friend. Ah, but watch out, he'll strip you without a blink of remorse. Master of clever logic that he is, the bandit will rearrange all the facts just enough to gain your sympathies. Many stroll to their graves armed in arm with the very robber who has stolen away their lives his name? procrastination he whispers the magic word manana as you reach for a donut to celebrate your philosophy never do today what you can put off till tomorrow perhaps that describes you today when it comes to spiritual things Folks, I can assure you, many of the people in hell right now thought that they too had time. And they put it off, and they put it off, and they put it off. They said, I'll do that later. There's no hurry. I'm young. I've got time. But death came, and now it's too late. How sad. Now notice the five foolish virgins even hung out with the five wise. They were were all together. They were friends with one another, you would assume. Everybody would have looked at them and saw a great deal of similarities between them, and yet they were very, very different. Now it's not that the five foolish virgins were evil. There's no hint in this parable whatsoever of wickedness. In fact, presumably, the foolish virgins were just as good as the wise virgins no negative comment is made on their moral situation or their ethical situation it's simply that half of them were prepared and half of them were not now please don't push the details of this parable to suggest that Jesus is saying that half of everybody is not Prepared. That is way too generous. I think there are plenty of places in the scripture where Jesus and the other writers of scripture point out it's not half who are not ready and in fact almost nobody is ready. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many travel that road. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And Jesus said, Very few find that road. There's going to be people who have hung out with Christians who went to church, who did many of the same things in life. But there's one important difference. They're not ready to meet the Lord. They have never been truly born again. What's going to happen to those? Well, exactly what Jesus is saying here. All over the earth last night, even right here in our area, there were people who closed their eyes last night for the last time. Maybe they took one breath and died after an extended illness. Maybe it happened quickly in some kind of accident. But all around us last night, just like there were babies being born, there were people who were dying. What's going to happen to those who have not prepared? You see, folks, the moment of truth comes for all of us. The moment of crisis. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So secondly, I want you to see unpreparedness is exposed. Unpreparedness is exposed. In verse 6, Jesus said but at midnight there was a cry here is the bridegroom come out to meet him then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Now let's go back a moment to the typical wedding back then. There were were callers in the bridegroom's group. And these callers, they would run ahead. Again, there would be these parties, these respective parties going on. Groom's house, bride's house. And when the groom got ready, he and his party got ready to go get the bride and her party, they would send these runners ahead. They were runners, they were callers. And they would run ahead to the bride's house and they would get there first and they would announce, they would shout out, behold the bridegroom cometh to give the bridesmaids and the bride party time to get everything together and get ready for this great procession through the streets Well, we're told that as the bridegroom delayed they all became drowsy and slept here again folks the wise and the foolish were guilty of this There there is no negative judgment given about the fact that they all fell asleep We're told that at midnight there came the cry. What's being indicated here is an unexpected time. It happened in the middle of the night. Isn't it interesting how you see that theme surface over again in the Bible? The children of Israel began their journey of leaving Egypt at midnight. Rabbinical tradition stated that the Messiah would come at midnight. It's interesting, all of the New Testament references to the middle of the night. Now, folks, with different time zones, we know, we know to obviously not take that as a literal statement for everybody. It's not going to be midnight for everybody when it happens. And so again, what's the point of these references in the Bible to the Middle of the night. The point is, it happens unexpectedly when you're not looking for it. The scripture is indicating that we don't know when the bridegroom's going to come. It'll be after a long delay and after a time that even those who were ready have begun to grow weary. And then all of a sudden, it happens in a moment. Well, at this point, all the girls scramble together. They get their torches because they know what's coming next. They're getting ready to take to the streets in a big parade, a big procession. A big procession of lit torches. And so they they grab their torches. Now, the torches were simply, it was a bundle of rags on the end of a long pole, three, four, five foot pole. It was a long stick and, and, and they would have this, this bundle of rags on it and they would have olive oil all on it and they would, they would keep the rags saturated in oil and according to those who write about these things, they say typically that that particular type of torch would burn for about 15 minutes. And so you would carry your supply of oil and, and you would have to keep drenching your, your rag with oil. Now here's where the foolish realize they've not made preparation. They don't have any oil. They've not prepared. And so they ask the others. But the wise know that they don't have enough oil for themselves and the others. Folks, again, the point is not that they are selfish that's not what's being said here about the wise virgins, that they're being selfish. The point, again, highlights preparation. There are some things that simply cannot be shared. You cannot, you, you, you have to be prepared to meet God yourself. Nobody's going to ride into heaven on somebody else's coattails. Now folks don't get too caught up in parables about making every little detail though have to stand for something. In the early church, the patristics, the church fathers, they did this with the parables. They would allegorize everything. They, 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 they took everything in the parables and made some type of doctrine or some type of illustration out of it. And so they said that the lamps that these virgins carried were good works because Christians are exhorted to let their good works shine before men. The oil, they said, is the Holy Spirit. The oil merchants they needed to go buy from are Moses and the prophets. And on and on they went. That's what they did with all the parables. Just read sometime origins interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. When he took the Good Samaritan to the inn, the inn, he says, was the church. The innkeeper was the Apostle Paul. The wine and the oil that Paul uh, poured into the wounds of the guy was the gospel. On and on they went with this stuff. Don't do that with the parables. That type of interpretation of the parables, allegory, allegorizing everything lasted all the way down to about 1888 a guy by the name of Adolf Euliker, a German scholar and he kind of once and for all his groundbreaking work once and for all kind of put to an end the allegor- allegorization of the parables and he, as he pointed out there's one main point of comparison that Jesus is trying to make the parables are stories with a lesson Jesus was a master storyteller. You go home this afternoon and you tell a story to your grandkids or your children and and you don't want them to run with every little single detail and, and build some huge mountain out of it. You're simply making a point and some of the details that you tell about are just the coloring to the story. And that's how the parables are. So again, rather than trying to make the oil have to stand for something, the fact that their oil ran out simply exposes them as being unprepared. That's all. They were unprepared. And when they found that out, when they discovered that, they couldn't rely on the preparation of anybody else. Again, you've got to be personally ready. You know, I've talked to husbands before who would not come to Christ and they'd say, Preacher, I don't need to do that. My wife's got enough religion for everybody. It's not going to work that way. The five foolish were tried, they were forced to try to do the impossible. To make preparation and get back in time. But folks, when Jesus splits the sky and he comes back, it's going to be too late. Paul says it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Whatever state you're in is the state that you will be in for all of eternity. There's no no going back at that point. There's no changing things at that point. It's too late for these five ladies. Third thing I want you to see rejection is final. Beginning in verse 10 it says, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. They came running back to the door shouting, let us in, let us in. And the answer is firm, no, I do not know you. Verse 11 points out how desperate they are because it's in the continuous tense. Over and over and over again, they're knocking and saying, Lord, let us in. Lord, let us in. Lord, let us in. But the answer that comes back is that final no, no. If you either reject Jesus or you procrastinate and fail to make preparation to meet Him, you're in grave danger because there is coming a time that you will hear these same words, Depart from me, I never knew you. Folks, what I want you to understand is there is no second chance. I honestly wish as a as a Bible student and preacher, I honestly wish I could tell people that there, don't hurry, don't worry, there's time, there's time, there's going to be a second chance. I, I wish I could extend second chances and all the people. But I cannot do that and be faithful with the text. The Bible is clear. It happens in a moment and there's no undoing what's done. The Bible says those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. In Luke 13, Jesus said, When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I do not know where you've come from. Then you, the, uh, then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from depart from me all you workers of evil in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves cast out here were these bridal attendants they looked like the rest they dressed like the rest they associated with one another Again, presumably they were friends. There was only one difference. They were not ready. And when the moment of truth came, they couldn't fool anybody. Folks, can you imagine the horrors of people standing before God at the great white throne judgment? And your name not being found in the book of life, and God saying, Depart from me. Can you you imagine what that would be like? And again, the Bible tells us that's exactly what's going to happen to many people. Some people want to try to explain that away. You cannot explain that away and be faithful to the text of Scripture and be faithful to the words of Jesus and the prophets and the apostles. It's there. And people have got to deal with it. You and I have got to deal with it. Think of Noah's generation. Think of how Noah's generation must have felt when those waters started rising. The rain came down. The rain kept coming. The waters kept going up over and over. There was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to hide. The door of the ark was closed and secured and it was too late. The most famous sermon in American history, I would say without a doubt, Would be the sermon by Jonathan Edwards. People do not like the title of the sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But that was his title. And he preached that day, and they said he held his manuscript, he had poor eyesight. By that time, and he held his manuscript in front of his face and he read that whole sermon word for word. And they said, as he read that sermon, that people literally fell out of their pews into the aisle, prostrate before God, crying out for God's mercy. Jonathan Edwards described people as dangling over the flames of hell by just a single little thread and not even knowing what a precarious position they were in that at any moment that thread could break and they could drop into hell. And if that happened to them, there would be no way of escape. And people that day in New England were crying out to God for mercy and coming to Christ. That makes verse 13 the punchline to this whole story. There's a principle in parable interpretation, the end stress rule. Now, not all parables have the end stress rule. This one does. And it just simply means the punchline comes at the end of the parable. What's the punchline? Look at verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. That's the punchline. Watch. Be ready. Don't be foolish. Don't gamble with your eternity. Don't be caught unprepared. It will be too late. The door will be shut and you'll be on the outside. Folks, again, listen to me. Just, just a moment longer. Please understand something. People think they have time. People assume they have time. They just take it for granted. They have time. And I hope for most people, they do. But you know the problem? You don't know if you're in that group or not, do you? You may not have time. What if Jesus were to split the skies this afternoon? What if you don't even make it home from church this afternoon? I'm not trying to scare you. I realize sometimes pastors say things and tell things to people that it's like they're trying to stir fear, and I, I don't want to do that. I fully assume, I am am virtually 100% certain that everybody in here is going to make it home safely this afternoon. And you will come back safely tonight, and you will go safely about your business this week. I assume that. But, what if that's not the case? What if it's not? The door shut. Those who were ready went in with the bridegroom. Those who were not ready were left on the outside. Which side of the door are you going to be standing on? You know the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He suffered on that cross. He bled and he died. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that that in God's economy of things, he was making, making a substitution. He was bearing our sin that we might be clothed in his righteousness. Wonderful gift of eternal life. Wonderful gift of the forgiveness of our sins. Have you come to Christ? Have you believed the gospel and you're staking your eternity and your life upon what Christ has done for you? What a wonderful day of rejoicing you have coming ahead of you when the door's shut and the marriage supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb begins and you're there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all this. How wonderful that's going to be. But I think of those who are going to be on the outside. No hope. Jesus told a parable in Luke 16, that great gulf set between the two. The guy was in agony. He said, Lord, just send somebody just a drop of water. Jesus said, No, there's a gulf set so nobody can cross from either side. And Jesus said to the man, You had had opportunity in your lifetime. You had opportunity. You have opportunity. You've heard. Which side of the door are you going to be on?